HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced this system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money yep. for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all of my previous episodes are available in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org and probably wherever you get your podcasts. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you are listening. Our sponsor today is Heritage Foods. If you don't know them, you should check them out, heritagefoodsusa.com. Today's theme, ancient ice cream. Seems like, you know, a little bit of a, an oxymoron when you think about it. We pay no mind to the fact that we can get ice cream pretty much anytime and anywhere with 24-hour Walmarts and drive through Baskin-Robbins. But let's step back a few hundred years to a time when there was no refrigeration. In hot regions, that meant things had to be pickled, dried, or eaten pretty much as soon as they were harvested, or you had to bring down ice and snow when it happened in the mountains. Of course, adding sugar helped preserve things too, and we're programmed to like things that are sweet. Let's take this pondering over to the Levant, which was once, like much of Europe and the Middle East, part of the Ottoman Empire. Now it's where Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, Iraq, Lebanon, Cyprus, and Turkey are. Sweets and nuts there have been known for millennia. It's there that ice cream was first created. Seems strange to conceive of this cold food starting in a place that we often associate with hot, arid desert. But it was some ingenious Turk or Ottoman, or as somebody 
suggested someone fell asleep when it was cold out, although I'm not sure I believe that one, who figured out that with a certain mixture of good cream, dried orchid bulbs, tree sap, and some form of cold, likely a bowl of snow, they could be turned into what we now know as a favorite to pretty much everyone in the world. I've yet to meet anyone who doesn't like ice cream. I remember as a kid, using the old hand-churned ice cream maker, you had to pack salt and ice together and you had to work for it. You had to churn and churn. This is sort of a modern equivalent of the way that booza was made. It needs to be pounded and stretched to remove air and ice crystals while it's chilling, and the mastic and salab add a stretch akin to a soft, really cold taffy. I visited today's guests a few weeks ago at their shop, Republic of Booza, to see it for myself. Since I don't think we'd be able to do the whole stretching thing here in the studio, I had to go visit them, and I got to taste all of their delicious flavors. While the stretch is definitely social media ready, until we invent Tastogram, there's no substitute for tasting flavors. Ranging from classics like mint chip, chocolate or vanilla, to honey labna and red miso, they were some of the best ice creams I've ever tasted. Thank you, Michael Sadler and Gilbert Elsmetter, for having me in your shop and for coming down to talk in the studio today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks indeed. So Michael and Gilbert are the founders of, uh, of Booza, or the, sorry, of the Republic of Booza here in Williamsburg. It's on North 4th Street. Uh, I suggest anyone who is in New York or if you're visiting, you should go and check it out. Um, but tell me about... I had never heard of it uh, when I first was introduced to you guys, and you know we were talking about doing this show. So, how do you, you know, when someone most people don't know what it is, except that it's some kind of ice cream. Tell me about it. So the uh, the original way that we describe it is, uh, or the first way that we describe it is, we say booza is the uh, the original form of ice cream that was first developed about 500 years ago in the Levant region of the Eastern Mediterranean. And its principal point of distinction compared to other forms of ice cream is a soft, elastic-like consistency that ultimately makes it a superlatively smooth, dense, and creamy ice cream. You have that down. That's a good, it's a really good description. I, I definitely, I didn't, you know, my, my writing about it was not quite as good. Superlative is a very good way to uh, describe it. But it also, it doesn't have any eggs, right? No, no eggs. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's a, you know, in a, in a time where... We are dealing with lots of different food allergies or food, you know, people have, have different ideas about what they want to eat, what they can eat, what they can't eat. I think the fact that your ice cream has no eggs really does set it apart in, in, in an even different way. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite well received because not only does it not have eggs, it is all natural, all plant-based. It doesn't have any one of these eight-syllable level synthesized chemical <laughs> stabilizers that I neither know how to pronounce nor care to, uh, which, which is something interesting because people see the consistency and it's, it's a bit different to them. And one of the questions that they, they ask is, you know, what additives are in this? And it's, right. it's interesting needing to explain that actually there, there are none. <laughs> this is... Right. The ingredients in it were originally added for what they bring to it, not in terms of making it shelf stable or making it, you know, hold its texture longer or any of those kinds of things. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, the, the, you know, the ingredients that we sort of know are in there that make sense are sugar, milk, cream, you know, something in that, in that vein. Um, the flavorings, obviously, I mean, you guys go from classics to, you know, to really interesting, more, I would say, uh, fun and more modern flavors, which we will get to in a minute. But there are a couple of other things in there. I mean, the salab and the mastic, which really are what set it apart and are really also, I think, um, really tie it to a region. I mean, other ice cream, you know, you don't pick up a pint of Ben and Jerry's and like think about, 
you know, Vermont, I don't think, as it being like the birthplace of it, except that that's where like they were hippie dudes who like founded an ice cream company. Um, but so tell me a little bit about that, like the Mastic and the Salab and like how does that play into and why is it important? Um, in terms of, I guess, thinking about those ingredients specifically, they're extremely localized ingredients that haven't really traveled far and wide around the world. I guess Sahlab specifically um, is indigenous to that that part of the world. Um, it's never really been cultivated um, outside of that region. I guess people haven't really found a need to use it. They've generally substituted other things as time mm. has gone on, found alternatives um, to create whether it's ice cream or to thicken anything using alternatives, essentially. And I think um, t- together with the mastic, mastic was um, is from that part of the world, specifically more from islands uh, in, in Greece um, and used in both savoury and sweet foods as well. Also, it didn't really travel outside of that part of the world, um, whether it was tastes, not really accepting those kind of flavours or having a need for those. Yeah, I mean, um, just to explain if people are listening who don't know, salab is made from an orchid um, from the root, the tuber essentially, that's dried and ground, and it's a powder and it, it's a thickener used in beverages, used in foods in that region. Um, and mastic is pine sap. It's sap from a specific tree. Um, and those are both, you know, those are ingredients that don't really appear, although I have, I have recently read about some use of pine sap for a very specific dish in the west like during logging sort of days in the 19th century in in western north america um where they would take sap and use it to cook potatoes oh um, interesting which is supposed to be this you know apps like it's supposed to be like the nirvana of a baked potato it's like that it is wrapped in Sap or mastic, and well, roasted. Have to give it a give it a give it a go in the store. <laughs> Maybe you could do a roasted potato. Yeah, flavor. Yeah, create a flavor from it. Um, and look, I think those ingredients themselves are very well known in that re- in that part of the world. Outside of there, um, you know, maybe only diaspora communities really know about them. You know, they carry them when they fly back and fly back to America, Australia, wherever they go. Um, or people like, you know, Michael, for example, who didn't really grow up with, let's say, a Middle Eastern or, you know, Eastern Mediterranean culture may not, may have been exposed to it when traveling there or being told by a friend and being generally inquisitive about it. Sure. Um, so I think that's... You know, I think it's more a historical accident why probably <laughs> ice cream today um, it doesn't really include those ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's cheaper substitutes out there. You know, corn, people can probably figure out some kind of stretchiness <laughs> through like glutinous rice flour or right. corn flour. And, you know, I think mastic as well um, is replaced a lot by something called gum arabic and they're generally confused. So gum arabic is actually used... Um, a lot in different types of foods that we know and eat today as well in the West. So uh, I think, um, and then like from a stabilization perspective, which is a very common thing in ice cream as well, uh, egg egg and egg whites in general have been used to provide that texture. And that's, I guess, from, from our research and study and investigation over the years in creating this product, saw that that really happened um, in Italy, really, once ice cream yeah. kind of made its way there um, into Sicily, essentially, and then travelled north and uh, to, to the rest of the world from that point in time. If you go anywhere, really, like, a, let's say, India, for example, which have their own version of ice cream called kulfi, there's no eggs in that either. Oh. Um, and I think it's also thinking about 
uh, an evolution of what's available to you, what's fresh, and right. what you, what you can do with it. Eggs don't really last very long, right? Um, of in arid conditions that you were talking about yeah, earlier. Exactly. So, huh? Interesting. So, um, Gilbert, you had you founded a Booza company or a company that does some work with Booza in Australia with your sister, and she's still doing that there. So, mm-hmm. I mean, how did you get your start? with Booza there, and then I would love to hear a little bit about how did you guys come together to sort of create what you have here. Yeah, sure. I'll talk a little bit about that, and I'll, let, I'll hand over to Michael to talk about the uh, the serendipitous events that brought us all together. So my sister and I, actually, at the time, I was living in Hong Kong, um, and I wasn't working in any kind of food business or anything like that, and uh, I would travel to the Middle East very frequently. I have a lot of family that lives there. I was traveling through Turkey, Syria, uh, Lebanon, Iran, just for for a holiday, in looking at different types of foods, and I came across uh, booza specifically being presented in a specific way and made in a specific way. Now I've I've been told about it my whole life. My dad's a pastry chef. Um, he studied at culinary school in Beirut, so you know he told me about making it with salt and uh, throwing ice cream into the mix, and and um, but he never really told me about this whole stretchy pounding. Mm. Um, elastic consistency that you'd get from ice cream, and, and also the showmanship that that came along with that, which you see a lot in, uh, in a lot in Turkey and also in Syria, not so much in in Lebanon or anywhere else. And I was fascinated, so I went back to Hong Kong and I had a machine built essentially and put it into my sort of three hundred square foot apartment and <laughs> learned how to make bourza just for. The purpose of learning how to make bulls up. There right. was no business in mind when I was doing that. And after about three, four months of trial and error, pretty much figured it out. Um, thought the flavor was amazing. You know, had some trial and error with friends and friends with an Asian palate didn't really appreciate the flavors and the textures. It was a little oh. too floral. Yeah. Um, but friends and family that were visiting from Australia thought it was great and um, I spoke to my sister about it and we thought, you know what, maybe we could actually start a business doing this. So it kind of evolved, evolved from there, um, and then essentially fast forward to you know, 2016, 2015, 2016. Um, I'm going to hand over to Michael, who can kind of go through, um, because there's four of us, actually four of us uh, as co-founders, who kind of came together. When I guess Tamar, who's our, I'm going to call him the founder of the business, who kind of came up with the idea, um, essentially brought us all together. Yeah, so uh, Tamar is definitely this is the linchpin of the of the, <laughs> the four of us. Got it. He uh, he's a Canadian by citizenship, uh, Palestinian by lineage, and grew up a bunch of places around the world, including Cyprus, which was where he had his first uh, encounter with Booza. There was a guy that used to come around with a little bicycle, uh, the Booza Man, uh, <laughs> and uh, that, he, that is, so for him it was a bit of childhood nostalgia. But he um, he was really struck by the fact that there were not as many flavor. There were really only one. One there was only one principal flavor, which mm-hmm. is the kashta, the candied cream, uh, which actually has no real flavor added to it. Right. It's meant to celebrate the natural quality of the dairy. Uh, has so you get a little bit of the the piney, earthy flavor from the sahalib and the mastic, a uh, little bit of uh, aromatics and brightness from some orange blossom water, and then a pistachio garnish, optional. Uh, and so Tamar had the idea that he, he wanted to use to make, give Booza a breath of fresh air and start making it in a bunch of different flavors. Um, simultaneously, I had uh, encountered Booza for the first time about a decade ago in the old city of Damascus, where I was doing a um, 
when I was uh, doing a minor in Arabic and spent some time abroad. And I had a sort of similar impression, which was that I walked into this one place in the old city of Damascus, Bakdash, that was super famous, um, and they specialized only in booza, but there was only one flavor that they served. So there's lots of different, like, stalls, but they all have one flavor, and uh, they each are making it? And it was one, one place one within place. the market, got it, got it. Um, and they, they specialized in booza. And they only had one flavor. It was only one product on the menu. Huh. And as someone who grew up in the States where, right. you know, ice cream shops in the 90s and early aughts were practically engaged in an uh, arms race of ever proliferating flavor sure. offerings. 53, 92, yeah, whatever. You can have your own, make your own custom flavors, yeah. Yeah, this, uh, this kind of struck me as, yeah. a, as a, you know, a little oddity that there was only one option there. Um, so fast forward a couple years, uh, I end up encountering Tamar, uh, summer before we both start, were to start graduate school at the same university in the United Kingdom, uh, while traveling throughout the Levant area. And so we exchanged contact info and we each showed up to the UK. We were two of the only people each other knew on campus. And so we quickly established a rapport and he was doing his MBA at the time. I was studying a, um, a master's in philosophy. I am a, describe myself sometimes as a recovering academic. <laughs> uh, but uh, the um, Tamar would always joke around with me. He was, oh, you know, let's start this booza business. Let's start this booza business. And, you know, I was kind of focusing on Wittgenstein and Aristotle and just couldn't really whatever. Uh, and then I ended up pulling the plug on my academic career. And Tamar kind of approached me with a bit more serious of a tone saying, so this booza concept. Yeah. You want to do this? Um, so we started sort of throwing around some ideas, getting a bit more serious about planning. Meanwhile, Tamar ended up going on a business trip to Sydney for uh, for his other job at, at the time, and ended up encountering Jill Bear at a smorgasburg type market, oh, like a farmers oh. market. Essentially, yeah. would go there every Saturday morning and try and teach people about boozer. And, and what it is, essentially, because yeah, it's a, the process of education. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, he saw Jill Bear making booza in a couple different flavors, um, things like fig jam and walnut, mm. Yeah, like a tur- lemon sherbet, Turkish delight, stuff like that. And so he, he instantly approached Jill Bear with this concept that he'd had to sort of give booza a modernization. And uh, Jill Bear was... You know, sparks were flying right well i mean you can speak yeah. for yourself yeah. <laughs> it was totally on board with the idea um i guess the concept was pretty different in australia where the the brand was a sort of uh, ice cream of the levant and so mm. all of the flavors were sort of made yeah. in that vein Got and it. so when tamar approached jill bear saying you know we want to take booza, booza and use it as a vehicle to explore flavors from all over you know my understanding is that you were like I'm on board, definitely. Yeah, yeah, from a small, uh, a small factory in suburban Sydney to New York City. I mean, I mean it's a great. I mean, that's a great Genesis story. I love that. You know, uh, to me, I feel like it adds a lot of meaning to the idea of it being the Republic of Booza. I mean, that it really has this incredible international backstory, um, where you guys came together from all of these varied backgrounds to create a new republic. Right. That's yeah, that's it. I think it's that's the like probably the biggest thing. We all came from different backgrounds, yeah. from diff- with different experiences and cultural upbringings also then bringing hold the republic of like the, the global nature of sure. of the flavors that we wanted to present also represent you know food in general across the world yeah 
Awesome. We're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsor, Heritage Foods USA. And uh, when we come back, uh, Gilbert, I want to find out about this uh, jewelry store robbery that we were involved in. <laughs> oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie just for me, girl? Please don't give none away. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. Let it get sweeter by the day. I want you save it, baby, won't you save it? I want you save it all for me. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. If you're just tuning in, I have two of the founders of the Republic of Booza with me. If you don't know what Booza is, I suggest you rewind to the beginning of the episode uh, and you tune in and listen. Um, but before the break, I was saying, Gilbert, uh, you know, I understand that at some point uh, you have an interesting story about uh, being, uh, I guess, not exactly a being a part of a robbery in a jewelry store, not necessarily... Uh, you know, taking part in the robbery in an active way. Yeah, so <laughs> it's funny the things you can read on the internet. <laughs> so um, in my final year of high school, uh, we had all of we all had all, all of me and my mates had gone on a school camp essentially. And after any school camp, we were skateboarding night and day. Back then, we would go to the city center and essentially skate. Um, you know, destroying destroying the ground and rails and. <laughs> You name it on the streets and be chased around by security guards, as you do. So we decided to take a break and, and grab some lunch. Um, and it was this is in Martin Place in Sydney. And we would videotape ourselves thinking that one day we would be pro or some, some dream like that. And we headed down the steps uh, to the subway station there to, to grab a burger. And I looked to my left and there was essentially a couple of guys in a jewellery store uh, with a gun. Um, pointed at the uh, the jewelry store attendant, and the uh, the attendant was essentially loading a black bag full of jewels, diamonds, you name it. I wow. wasn't really paying too much attention to what he was putting into there. Um, and my mate Michael behind me had a camera, so I said, essentially, switch it on, let's film this. Yeah. And from we were kind of slightly concealed behind a staircase, or so we thought, and um, essentially filmed the whole thing take place, and so. It felt like we were there for about an hour, but it was probably about 10, 15 seconds and essentially watched them essentially leave the store, walk up the stairs right past us and we were filming this the whole time and we decided to essentially chase them down the street as they were running towards their getaway car, um, thinking that they didn't really know that we were following them with a camera. Essentially, one of the guys turned around and essentially pointed the shotgun uh, and cocked it or whatever you call it wow. uh, at, at all of us and at that point in time you see the video camera cut out and everyone essentially dives behind a wall and 
that, that's really the end of it. And yeah. proceed from there to spend probably the next eight hours sitting in a police station waiting for a report, yeah. um, you know, thinking we were going to be famous, thinking we were going to get the videotape back and actually be able to look right. at it and laugh about it, um, none of which actually happened. Um, all of my friends actually were in the front page of a newspaper, local newspaper of the school where we went to. My mum had to approve that and she thought the robbers would come after me if my face was in that newspaper. Right. So sure. I unfortunately didn't get the limelight that my friends yeah. did. But it was an interesting experience. But, they, but, but the, the, uh, the, the, the thieves never came after your friends, I hope? They did not. Okay. They did not. They were actually apprehended. They were. Um, yeah. We never got the tape back. The police yeah. said they have to wipe it or keep it in evidence or something uh, like too, that. I mean, I'm sure that those were your skateboard moves that would have turned you pro. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly I mean, that right. Was it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it was a pretty scary moment. Would I do it again? <laughs> um, probably not. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, right? Now, in the modern age, everybody has a little video camera in their pocket, yeah, right? Definitely. And so, you know, it, it is a it is a real question of like you know do you film it or do you not right it's a you know i mean i guess i guess it's good that there are people that can film it and hopefully the people who are you know perpetrating these things know that people are filming and perhaps that keeps crime down i don't know hard hard to say um well i want to get back to back to booza i mean i guess i'm glad you didn't go pro skateboarder i'm glad the tapes were lost right (laughs) because otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here today um, and so, you know, let's talk a little bit about flavor development. You know, obviously you guys have a lot. How many flavors do you have in the case at any given time? 17. Yeah, 17. And, and you know, it was described. I mean, it, it, the case is beautiful. The colors of some of them, especially like the saffron is this beautiful yellow. Uh, when I would, the day I was there, I believe there was a blackberry um, that was just, you know, as purple as can be. Um, David Leibovitz wrote on his blog about coming to visit you guys that it was the most beautiful ice cream case he's ever seen. And I mean, he's a guy who knows a lot about desserts and sweets mm-hmm. and ice creams. Um, so, you know, how do you develop your flavors? I mean, the classics, obviously, we all know what the classics are. Vanilla, chocolate, uh, you know, you talked about the, the um, you know, the classic booza flavors. Um, but what about the other flavors? Where does the inspiration come from? Yeah, so we, we divide our flavors essentially into three categories. And this is, we had to do this because there were so many different choices and ideas that we were coming up with. Yeah that we wanted to kind of at least categorize them so they made sense to people. Um, classics essentially are, at the moment, American classic flavors. So obviously we did that because you never know, maybe at some point in the future we're going to open a store in another country or another location right. where a classic may mean something completely different. Sure. So we wanted to keep ourselves open to that. We then have a, essentially a global flavor uh, category, which is essentially talking about specific ingredients or flavors in specific locations in the world, whether sweet or savory, that we can represent and pay homage to with Booza as essentially the vehicle of that flavor. Got it. So, so, you know, so that, for instance, like the red miso. Exactly. That kind like of a right. Sichuan white chocolate. You know, Sichuan and dessert is just not a thing. Yeah. Definitely not in China. <laughs> yeah. Um, desserts in general in China are not a thing, but... Um, that's that's an example of that. And then we go over to the experimental flavor category, which essentially gives us the ability and free reign to present weird, wacky, inspirational, interesting combinations of things we've seen in our travels, in our experience, and to bring them as, as well and present And that would those. be like that. I mean, I remember tried, I tried, I think it was pineapple and burnt yeah. butter. Pineapple, right? burnt butter. There's yeah. sumac in it. There's some yep. basil. You know, it's like a any combination of things that we think can work and... One of the uh, one of the things I like to stress and I find very important is ice cream should not only be a sweet thing. I want to try and bring other flavors that uh, are in the palate, in the flavor palette as well, whether, whether savory, whether salty, spicy, 
um, bitter, any of those kind of things. I think you can present them in ice cream and it doesn't have to be sweet. Yeah. Still need to add some kind of sugar. Obviously, it won't never be ice cream. But yeah, yeah. So then are you the one in the lab, Gilbert? I mean, you're the yeah, one. so myself, um, we spent, sort of Michael and I spent quite a bit of time in the early days, even before we had a store or location, brainstorming all these um, ideas about different types of flavors and combinations that we can execute. Um, obviously, there's a, a limit to how crazy you can go because a lot of preparation required to prepare enough product and and continue to innovate as well. Sure. sure. Um, so... Um, I probably spend yeah most of my time in the lab. I have a I have a, a team, a sort of production assistant, Jeff, that helps me out with the day to day stuff as well. He's a, he's a he's a pastry and ice cream chef as well, so he's mm-hmm. he's quite good in helping create some of the newer flavors and bring some of his perspective as well. So I think it's it's more about bringing ideas to the table and seeing if they work, seeing how they're going to scoop, seeing how they're going to present. Because if you think about you know the the elasticity of the of the texture. Our staff are playing with it a lot, so a swirl might not sit very well in a, in the cabin if it's constantly being played with. Right. The the color's going to dissipate, so sure. you have to factor in some of those aspects that maybe a standard scoop shop wouldn't have to worry about. Got it. And so, Michael, then are you responsible more for like the front of house and the the outreach and that kind of side of things? Yeah, more the operations marketing yeah. side of things. Got it. Um, I, I like to think I contribute to some of the flavor <laughs> brainstorming. I, I well, have, I, I imagine you have to taste all of it, right? Yeah, quality control. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I do have one concept I want to dust off my gloves this uh, this coming holiday season. So cool. It's uh, it's been a while since I've I've gotten back in the lab, but. I was going to ask sort of what, so, you know, so what's coming. So you guys have just sort of made it through your first summer. Uh, just dropped below 40 degrees last night here in New York. Uh, feels a little early to me. Uh, we haven't hit, you know, haven't hit Halloween yet. Um, so as a, you know, as an ice cream shop, um, you know, people like ice cream all the time, right? I mentioned earlier, Ben and Jerry started in Vermont. They were in a ski town, you know, they, they have turned into a, a global, uh, global name. Um, you know, what are you guys planning for the for the winter now that you're sort of through your first summer? So we actually just today uh, probably you know, started being served as uh, we started rolling here on air. The uh, we have uh, two Halloween flavors oh, cool. that are rolled out. We have a chalk o' lantern, <laughs> which is a pumpkin flavored booza laced throughout with a chocolate ganache, a dark chocolate ganache, and then we have a, a fun one, a Dracula's bloody mess. Oh wow! With which is a white chocolate rocky road of marshmallows, chocolate chunks, uh, almonds, and with a sour cherry blood swirl throughout. Cool. So, uh, so we've got some holiday stuff going on right now. Um, as Thanksgiving and the more proper holiday season approaches, we'll, we'll keep this rotation going with stuff that's you know, appropriate month to month. Uh, we also have some some uh, warmer cold weather offerings that are in the cards. Uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to reveal exactly what those are sure. quite yet. Well, but, people uh, should people should head over to the shop to, to find out, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I found interesting and, and one of the things in reading about Booza online, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, the Saleb and the Mastic keeping it from melting quite as fast. Right. So, I mean, it has this stringy texture. And so you guys end up, end up serving it actually warmer than a lot of ice cream, right? I remember you, you, uh, I took home a couple of flavors with me and you said, make sure you pull them out of the freezer a little bit before to let them warm up. And I was thinking, warm up, that's weird. You have to let your ice cream warm up, but you know, it makes sense, right? That it would end up being too hard and wouldn't have that proper texture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you find that like, do your cones last longer than like, you know, if you did like a side by side with like, 
you know, Haagen-Dazs? Would theirs just melt into a puddle and yours would maintain some texture? Um, I think there are two interesting things going on here about Booza as a distinct form of ice cream or frozen dessert compared to others. Uh, one of them is is the density that contributes to it lasting longer. Mm. Or one piece of you know, sort of product education that we've had to undertake is that people are used to visuals of ice cream that is punctuated throughout with air, sometimes as uh. much as 50%. And so you see these giant scoops of ice cream and you think you're getting like an average portion, but really half of it is air. Um, Booza has no air (laughs) whipped into it whatsoever. And so what you're getting is really just pure product. And so uh, what we serve as a small uh, might visually strike some people as a bit stingy, but in reality, it's a full quarter pound, quarter pint of ice cream. Right. Um, Just without the air. (laughs) Just without any of the air. So that, that actually lasts for quite a bit. Um, and will last for a, a while um, while you're eating it simply because it is a lot of product. Sure. Um, the other thing I, uh, to ties into what Joe Bear was mentioning earlier about exploring different areas of the flavor spectrum. Uh, because Booza is served at around 12 to 15 Fahrenheit as opposed to anywhere from minus 5 to you know, 5 or 6 degrees, you know, going from free grocery store pints to gelato on opposite ends of the spectrum, um, we actually that makes it a more perfect vehicle to explore flavors from all over. Oh, yeah. As you start getting to those super cold temperatures, the uh, the flavor spectrum is distorted. Yeah. Um, and so you know you might have a, a flavor that has some salinity to it that's meant to structure the other ingredients, but when you have it at that cold temperature, you'll get the the sting of the salt on the sides of your tongue, but you won't actually get the flavor that it's meant to structure. Sure. Um, because of the temperature range at which we serve Booza, we kind of have a bit more of carte blanche to go crazy with yeah. uh, with where we're exploring. Nice. So uh, I, th- I think that's one of the, the really interesting things about this is that you know, in terms of flavor development, because it more accurately represents the flavors that it carries, it um, the world is sort of our oyster with whatever we want to explore. You know, anything that you think tastes good, I would argue probably could be made to taste good in Booza. (laughs) I want to jump in as well. I think it's worthwhile mentioning one of the uh, unique characteristics of serving a product at a warmer temperature is you can also smell it. Okay. Oh yeah. So there's another, obviously, a sensory aspect you have to consider when you when you with whatever kind of food you have, right? right. Normally, before you eat something, you smell it first, right? And, and it taste the smell. To, that's right. Yeah. Exactly right. So, you know, quite a few people said to us during our soft launch, friends and family, are like, "Wow, this is like the first time I've ever smelt ice cream." Huh. You know, whether it's the ingredient, whether it's like the dairy, the, the smell of the dairy, the mastic, the orange blossom. You know, you can smell those things just before you eat them, which impacts the whole experience as right. well. Oh, man, so that's, yeah, that's it's, a really it's good like, point. It's like, you know, I think, a, a, you know, back in the 14, 1500s, did people really think about this stuff when they accidentally <laughs> came upon booze? <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, we can take advantage of those things now. Right, of course. So, you know, coming up in the, in the future, uh, do you envision people being able to, I mean, obviously people can take home booze now from the shop. Um, you know, the experience of watching it be scooped was one that I was fascinated by because it doesn't scoop in the same way that we think of ice cream being scooped. Um, you know, I, I imagine you have to train your servers in a very different way if they've worked in other ice cream shops where you can just scoop the ice cream and it comes out as a perfect sphere. Definitely. Booza doesn't scoop that way. So there definitely is. A, like, I, I noticed that they had to develop a technique mm-hmm. of kind of lifting it and sort of patting it, putting it together into a scoop, whether that's in a cone or in a cup. Yeah. I think um, 
thinking about the future and how we grow because you can take home a pint like you did yourself yep. and um and Michael mentioned to you, take it out of the freezer before you and let it essentially get to the right temperature. Um, because once it's at the right temperature, with just a little bit of agitation, essentially you can essentially get that texture that you yeah. want from the product. Now, let's say you don't have that texture. It's, it, it maybe has a different mouthfeel, mm -hmm. um, but you're not going to get all the awesome flavors yeah. out of it if you're, if you're serving it too cold anyway. Right. Um, and I think that it's a very common problem I think with any ice cream manufacturer is the right balance of sugars and other ingredients to get it uh, servable at home straight out of the freezer. Sure. That's why a lot of people add things like glucose and other types of additives just to change the freeze point depression of the product. Um, but that's something that I've already been doing for many years in Australia. So I think sure. that's going to, I think, probably be the, one of the easier parts um, of our growth as a business. Um, you know, any kind of entrepreneur in the retail space will tell you it's always a battle. Yeah, and then I mean, it, and it seems to me, you guys are in a in a great uh, position to do custom flavors for, for restaurants for food service. Um, whether whether that's something you're developing that then becomes an exclusive somewhere, or whether someone comes to you. I mean, I love the idea of what you're talking about, and one you know, I I. I don't remember. I think it was at Sign of the Dove, which was a long gone, very fancy restaurant in Manhattan when I was, it was like, it was the very first, like, really, really nice dinner that I ever went to. I was 18. And uh, the, the first, like, course or amuse or whatever was a savory ice cream. And I remember it so specifically, and I feel like I don't see it that much. I mean, you end up, you know, people end up, you end up with a sorbet as a palate mm -hmm. cleanser and very like, you know, tasting menus and things like that. But the idea of like a savory ice cream flavor, I think is really like underexplored. Yeah, definitely. And I like, I guess if, if this is a, like a shameless plug by yeah. any means, like <laughs> if, if any, I guess, restaurants and, and uh, sort of cafes, any other people want to explore flavor, Booze is a great vehicle, and it doesn't have to be that elastic type of uh, ice cream that you see in the Instagram videos or anything like that. It's sure. about obviously thickening it to a certain point to get the right texture um, and allow you to serve it in a restaurant setting as well. You know, some great, great ideas that we have, one of which I can disclose is like essentially like a tzatziki, a tzatziki sorbet, sort of mm. with sort of shredded cucumber mixed throughout it. A um, little bit of sweetness, but obviously the tartness of the yogurt yeah. could be served there with some pita bread on the side, and you can right. actually dip into it. Sure, um, oh, which kind of makes it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, position to 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 be where we are uh, and have the ability to play with flavors and, and and essentially work with people from around. You know, we've got a few projects that we've uh, we've got in the pipeline now as well for, with restaurants and some cafes um, coming up with some unique flavors. So keep an eye out for those great well i mean I, I can't wait to see it i mean you guys are the first booza scoop shop in the united states right that's uh, right and so you know here's to here's to more of it i mean it really is a you know I, I encourage everybody to get down there and check it out if you're not in new york you can read more at republicofbooza.com um and i'm sure there's a contact us page on there if any restaurants or chefs want to get in touch and know more about the product or work on flavor development with you guys any, anything else any other events coming up or things people should be on the lookout for uh, I would say to, uh, also shameless plug, follow, yeah. follow our social media channels. Absolutely. Uh, we, we don't want to reveal too much in advance to coordinate the uh, 
you know, proper push at the right time. <laughs> but uh, follow us at uh, on Instagram and Facebook at Republic of Booza, and we'll we update those daily, and we'll keep all the all the key highlights and new initiatives uh, au courant. <laughs> Great, um, and you know, and and uh, I would encourage people. I mean, I feel like you know, lots of flavor ideas out there. Uh, I assume you guys take suggestions. Perhaps uh, you know, someday if somebody will suggest something, and it could become a flavor. Why don't you give us one right now? All right, I'll give you one right now. I would love for there to be something that incorporated Sancho pepper, Japanese okay. Sancho okay. pepper. Um, and I have a good source for you for okay. Sancho pepper. Um, or um, black sesame seeds okay. or sesame paste. All right. All right, we'll see if we can combine those two for you and That'd see what great. we come up with. Sounds good. All right, well, thank you guys so much for joining me today on Feast Your Ears. Yeah, thank you thank for you. having us. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. You can find this podcast as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show, and please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.